invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. If you are visiting with us, uh, we are in the middle of a series through the life and ministry of Elijah the prophet. This morning we come to the story of Elijah the running prophet. Hear God's word, 1 Kings, chapter 18, beginning in verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again. Seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word. Our Father, how thankful we are that you have spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed your goodness, your grace to us in Jesus Christ. You have instructed us how we are called to live as those who have been called out of this world, who belong to you, who are your children. Oh Lord, would you come now by your Holy Spirit and help us, teach us, change us, we pray. Transform us by your truth and by your grace together for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we ask it. Amen. Every time I read this passage, I cannot help but think of the 1978 Superman movie. If you have seen it, you perhaps remember the scene in which Clark Kent is in high school. He's working as the equipment manager for the football team. uh, And one of the cheerleaders invites him to come to a party to play some records. Don't you love the the datedness of that movie? Uh, And her jealous boyfriend uh, comes over and says, no, Clark can't come with us. He's got work to do. He knocks over all the equipment that Clark had been stacking uh, and, and they leave. They head out in the car. So what does Clark do? Well, uh, evidently, he finishes his job, and then if you remember, he runs faster than a speeding locomotive, which if you go back and you notice, Lois Lane is in that locomotive. Go back and you'll, you'll see. Uh, so here is Clark. He's running faster than the train. He gets to the, 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 the party before the car gets there. And the boyfriend, when you know, job, they, how'd, you, how'd you get here so fast? And Clark says, well, I just, I ran. Right? So kind of smugly, proudly looking down. And, and I, I love that story. And I come to this story and say, well, wait a minute, is that the same thing that's happening here? Is Elijah running right, out of sort of arrogance and smugness? Is he, is he tweaking Ahab? Is he proving that he's better than Ahab? Well, as we're going to see in a moment, that's not what this passage is about at all. Um, but it does seem so strange, doesn't it? What is going on in this story? What does God want to teach us through the running prophet here in 2022? Well, I would argue a lot if we have ears to hear. But before we look at the prophet running to Jezreel, 
we have to see the prophet running to God. Now let's start there. Elijah running to God. What an incredible day it had been. Right? The 450 prophets of Baal had screamed. They had cut themselves. They had made themselves a bloody mess for their deaf and their mute non-God. Elijah had mocked them, and then calmly he had offered a petition, a powerful petition, to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, to act on behalf of his people, to, to prove in a spectacular way that he was the only God of heaven and of earth. And God had done it, hadn't he? He had consumed the, the, the sacrifice. He had accepted that, that burnt offering as forgiveness for his people's sins. He had set it on fire. He had consumed it along with the wood, the stone, uh, everything about that altar. The dust, the water was all consumed. And through that contest and on Mount Carmel, as we saw last week, he had brought repentance to the hard, idolatrous hearts of his people. He had returned them to himself. He had caused them to, to humbly and to audibly confess that he alone was God. And then, as you see back in verse 40, Elijah takes the prophets of Baal down to the brook Kishon. And according to God's word in Deuteronomy 13 and 17, he had righteously and justly enacted the death penalty against them. He had made the waters of the brook Kishon run red with their blood. The idolatry that had caused the drought is gone. It has been done away with. It has been dealt with. So now the drought can be removed. And yet we look at this story and we don't see the rain happening immediately, do we? The, the idolatry is, is done. The prophets of Baal have been executed and yet there is no rain. What's going on here? Well, it's a little bit like what we deal with today, isn't it? With our supply chain issues, right? Even if all the, the factories overseas were, were, were manufacturing things at full capacity, even if all the bottlenecks at every port were, were done and all the container ships were unloaded, there would still have to be trucks to bring those goods to all the various stores throughout our country. A similar thing is going on here. It's not raining yet, because though the idolatry has been dealt with, God ordinarily sends his blessings through the vehicle, through the channel of prayer. And that's what Elijah is doing here in our passage. Now, yes, it doesn't say explicitly that Elijah prayed, but his posture in verse 42 is a dead giveaway. The word bowing or, or stretching is used also in 2 Kings 4, verse 34, when Elisha the prophet prays for the resurrection of the dead boy and then bows himself, stretches himself upon the boy to raise him to life. Elijah is praying to God just as he had prayed some three and a half years earlier that God would turn off the rain hoses. Now he's praying again that God would turn them back on, that God would act according to his word and would bring rain and fruitfulness to his people. Almost certainly this is what James chapter 5 has in view when James writes that Elijah prayed and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. And Elijah, James tells us, was a man just like us. And so as we watch him pray, he shows us much about our own prayer lives, how we are called to pray. Let's look at four things that Elijah teaches us and shows us about how we are to pray. First, Elijah shows us that we are to pray with confident faith in the promises of God. 
You notice down at the bottom of Mount Carmel at the brook Kishon, Elijah had told Ahab to to go back up to eat and to drink for there is a sound of the rushing of rain, Elijah says. Now, Elijah wasn't hearing literal thunder in the distance. As we see in the following verses, there wasn't a cloud in the sky at that point. Rather, just like Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty seven, he saw the invisible God with the eyes of faith. So Elijah is hearing with the ears of faith the promises of God. And in light of the promises of God, Elijah prayed. You see, Elijah knew the, the general promise of God that when a, that his people had, had turned to idols and, and had thus incurred the discipline of drought, when they turned away from their idols, God had promised that he would send rain on the land. And when they turned to him and loved him with all their heart and all their soul. So Elijah knew that general promise, but he also heard, if you look back at chapter 18, verse 1, the specific promise that God had given to him, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Elijah knew that God's promises were not given to impede prayer, but to incite prayer, to impel prayer. God's promises do not render prayer unnecessary, but they show us what to pray for. They encourage us to ask and to expect in faith and in hope and in assurance that God will answer these prayers. How did the children's catechism put it that we said with the children this morning? Prayer is asking God for things that he has promised to give. Yes, of course, God can work apart from prayer. God often works his blessings apart from prayer. And yet he normally, he ordinarily delights to work through our prayers. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 37, he says this, This also will I let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. This I will let them ask me to do for them. And what is it? He says, I will increase their men like a flock. Then they will know that I am the Lord. In the post-exilic period, God says, I am to, I'm going to bring people back. You're going to grow up again as a nation. But I will let you ask me to do this for you. Why? So that you will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am your covenant God, the God who makes promises and fulfills them for you. You see, God works through our prayers so that as we pray on the basis of his promises, we know more clearly, we know more deeply that God is the giver of every good thing. We are taught dependence upon his word and our faith is increased. Picture it like this, perhaps. If someone writes you a check, right, uh, they have signed that check, they have written that check, your name is on it, their signature is on it, and yet, uh, until you endorse the back of the check and deposit it in your bank account, the money is not yours. Well, in a similar way, God wants us to, to plead his promises and in this manner to gain the blessing that has been promised. Now, of course, as we'll see in a, a moment, uh, unlike depositing a check, right, prayer does not work immediately or, or mechanically or, or automatically in any way. And sometimes, again, God sends his blessings apart from our prayers. And yet God wants us to pray with confident faith in his promises because that is the channel that he has ordained ordinarily to bring his promises to pass. 
I'll be honest, as I studied and prepared for this sermon, uh, I was convicted that my tendency so often is to take the promises of God for granted, right? To uh, presume upon the sovereign providence of our God, to assume that if God has promised it, well, he'll do it in his good time. I don't need to pray about it, right? That's the tendency of my heart. What about your heart? Do you also believe in the sovereignty of God? You rejoice in the promises of God, and yet it tends to lead you to prayerlessness rather than prayerfulness. But every time we act this way and think this way, what are we doing but forgetting that God is a God who has ordained not only the end, but also the means. I love the story in the book of Acts chapter 27 that teaches this, this truth so well. They're not about prayer per se. You remember Paul, he was uh, being carted over to Rome uh, in a boat. He's under arrest. He's, he's making his way. He's appealed to Caesar, right? And they, they encounter this incredibly huge storm to the point that, that everyone there on the boat thinks they're going to die. But Paul tells them, look, y'all, God, he didn't say y'all, God has appeared to me and has told me that I am going to make it. He is going to bring me safely to Rome. None of you are going to die. That's, you know, God has said it. Well, then a few days later, Paul realizes that some of the sailors are trying to sneak off the boat. And he says to the soldiers that are holding him under arrest, he says, if those sailors leave the boat, we cannot be saved. You're like, well, wait a minute, Paul. You just told me that God told you that he's going to bring you safely to Rome, that we're not going to die. And now you're saying that if the sailors leave the boat, we're going to die. Which one is it? And of course, the answer is both, right? God is going to bring Paul safely to Rome through the skill and the expertise of these sailors. God has ordained the end and the means to that end. In the same way, God works his sovereign will through our prayers as we plead his promises. What does James 4, 2 say? You do not have because you do not ask. Do you believe that? That sometimes we do not have because we do not ask. We do not pray in confident faith upon the promises of God. With his promises in hand, Elijah is showing us, we can and we ought to pray with faith and with assurance. The second thing Elijah teaches us about prayer is this, pray earnestly. If you go back to James chapter 5, verse 17, you'll read that Elijah, a man with a nature just like ours, a man just like us, he prayed earnestly. Literally, the Greek reads, he prayed with prayer. He prayed with prayer. And don't we see his earnestness here, his intensity, his fervency, even in his posture, Verse 42, he bowed himself down on the earth. He put his face between his knees. This was no half-hearted praying. Right? Repentance had come. The idolatry had been dealt with. And now he deeply longed for the rains to pour again, for God's promises to be fulfilled. He was fully engaged in his prayer. He was importuning the Lord. Right? He was pleading with God. He was begging the Lord, seeking and knocking and asking pouring out his soul, striving and struggling and, and wrestling with God in prayer. I love the, the, the little almost throwaway comment that Paul makes of a minor figure in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. He, he says to the Colossians that, that Epaphras, who is one of your number, always labors earnestly for you in prayer. 
He labors earnestly. The, the, the word is agonizo, from which we get our English word agonize. Here is Epaphras. He is, he is struggling. That word in the Greek was used of athletic competition. It was used of warfare and fighting, any struggle. Right? Think of an athlete who, who gives, we say, 110%. Right? Think of a soldier fighting for his life. Think of, uh, of Jacob in Genesis 32 wrestling with God and refusing to let him go until he blesses him. That's how Elijah was praying. He was praying earnestly, wrestling with God in prayer. He was praying with prayer. And yet how often do I, how often do you perhaps pray without prayer, right? Pray without praying, without any real earnestness about the thing that we're bringing before the Lord, without any real seriousness or, or, or desire or yearning for it, right? Even the prophets of Baal, as we saw last week, even they put us to shame. And their earnestness for a false God, for an idol. God sees our slack hearts, our half-hearted efforts. He sees when we're just going through the motions, when our praying is just rote and, and perfunctory, when we really don't care about the things we're bringing to him. Or, or even worse, when we're cynical, right? When, when we are revealing the fatalism or the materialism of our hearts. Deep down we just think, ah, praying is such a waste of time. If God wants it to happen, it'll happen. If he doesn't, it won't. What does it matter if I pray? No, Elijah is showing us that we must pray earnestly. Think about all the times you've done that. I know you have. Think about the times where you have felt deeply and desired something deeply and you've wanted God to act and to move and to change something and you have prayed with prayer. Elijah is showing us that, that all of our praying is called to be in that manner. The next time you pray, remember Elijah. Remember Elijah with his face between his knees. Perhaps even put yourself in a similar posture and pour out your heart. Pray your heart out to God who has promised to hear his people when they cry to him in their time of need. To give them what is good. Remember what James 5 says. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Do you believe that? So Elijah says, pray with confidence in the promises of God. Pray earnestly. But thirdly, he says, pray with your eyes open. Now here I'm not referring to our practice of closing our eyes in prayer, although it does strike me that we do that more to corral rambunctious children and to you know, deal with the distraction of our own hearts than because of any biblical instruction. It's hard to pray without ceasing uh, while you're driving a car or walking or, or jogging or just trying to pray a psalm back to the Lord if your eyes are closed. Uh, but, but when I say pray with your eyes open, I'm referring more metaphorically. I'm referring to Elijah here in this story, how he teaches us to pray in a watchful manner, to pray with our eyes open in the sense of keeping watch for the answers to our prayers. Seven times Elijah sends his servant to the top of Mount Carmel, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, to, to see if God has sent an answer to his prayer. Six times, the servant comes back saying, nope, nothing. There's nothing there. It's just the sea and the bluest sky you've ever seen. But the seventh time, the seventh time, there's an answer. Do you see what Elijah's doing, he's watching, he's, he's sending the servant to, to watch, to see, he, he's praying, you know, not like just shooting an arrow wildly in the sky or like, like blanks on a movie set. 
He's shooting with, with specificity and, and with directness and definiteness. He's asking the Lord to send rain. And he's expectantly looking for God's answer. We sang it this morning in Psalm 5, but if you go and read that psalm for yourself, in verse 3, you'll read this. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you, and I will eagerly watch. And yet, how often, how often do we, whether we pray for ourselves or for someone else, not watch for an answer to our prayers? How often do we even forget what we prayed for someone if we don't care if God answers our prayers, why are we even praying? And if we do care, then why are we not watching? Why are we not looking to see how God answers it that we might rejoice with thanksgiving? Think about the way that you or your children act when you've ordered something off of Amazon and you really want that thing to come soon. All right? Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to your kids? Of course it does. You've ordered it and you are like looking for the UPS truck, looking for the FedEx truck, the mailman. You are looking on your app like, when is it going to get here? Right? You're tracking it step by step. Or your kids are saying, dad, 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 when is it going to get here? Let me see your phone. Right? We watch. We're eager. We want something to come. Elijah is showing us that we ought to have that same attitude, that same approach with our prayers whether that means keeping a prayer journal that you write down the things you're praying for, whether that means putting reminders in your phone to, to check with someone that you've been praying for a week later to see, has God answered that prayer yet? Whatever it might be for you, keep watch. Pray with your eyes open. Remember what you've prayed for and watch for the Lord to work according to his timetable. Which brings us to the last thing that Elijah teaches us about prayer. Pray persistently. Elijah didn't get an answer right away, did he? He did back in the last section, right? When he said, God, send fire from heaven and just, you know, consume this, this offering. Boom, instantly, it was consumed. But here, he's having to, to wait. Again, prayer is not exactly like depositing a check in your bank account. He waits, he sticks with it. He doesn't lose heart, he doesn't give up when God's answer is, is no at first. He keeps praying with patience and with persistence and with perseverance he sends the servant back time again until finally there's a little cloud the size of a man's hand over the horizon of the Mediterranean Sea. Elijah is waiting on the Lord. Psalm 130 the psalmist writes I wait for the Lord my soul does wait and in his word do I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. We read it didn't we in Luke 18 the persistent widow just like her, Jesus wants us to pray at all times and not to lose heart. We are to keep praying until God and his providence makes clear that, that we are to stop praying. Right? That the time for prayer has ceased. But until him, he has made that clear in his providence, we pray. We pray for God to change people. We pray for God to change us. We pray for God to change circumstances. And yet we know, don't we, that it is hard to wait on God. It is hard to pray something for the sixth time or the 600th time. But we also know that nothing is too difficult for God. That's what Jeremiah 32 says. Lord, there's nothing too difficult for you. He has all power to bring about his sovereign purposes in our lives. And not only does he have all power, but he is filled with all love. He knows and wants what is best for us. He's the all-wise God. He knows what is best for us, and he knows when to bring about what is best for us. 
And so we can pray with believing persistence. Do you see what Elijah is teaching you? To pray with confident faith in the promises of God. To pray earnestly. To pray with our eyes open. To pray persistently. One commentator put it so well, he wrote, if we learn nothing else from Elijah's life except how to pray, we will have learned volumes. How do you pray? Learn from Elijah how to pray. The running prophet, running to God. But Elijah's not done running yet, is he? And now we come to Elijah running to Jezreel. And this is the part that makes us scratch our heads, isn't it? What is going on here? Right, as soon as Elijah's servant tells him that there's a small cloud over the Mediterranean Sea, Elijah sends him quickly to Ahab saying, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stops you. Now think about it. The Valley of Jezreel would have been a dust bowl after you know, three and a half years of no rain. And as this storm comes, it would have turned into a mud pit. The brick Kishon would have risen up and, and Ahab would have not been able to make it to Jezreel. And so as the sky it grows ominously dark with clouds and wind. If you were around here on Friday, you experienced this a little bit, didn't you? Right in the middle of the day, whoa, like what just happened? Right, and the wind picks up and the sky darkens and all of a sudden the bottom drops out. That's what happened there in Ahab's day. Remember, these Israelites hadn't seen a rain or dew for 42 months. And all of a sudden the bottom is dropping out and it is pouring down rain. They had to have been at least a little frightened. But if they saw him, perhaps they were even more frightened by the running prophet. They see Elijah with his loins girded, his, his garments tied up around his waist. And he's running before Ahab's chariot, the text tells us. He's running the 17 miles or so from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And it wasn't like he'd been training for a half marathon. Right? Up in Zarephath with a widow, he's training. No, the text tells us that the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This was a supernatural empowering of, of Elijah's legs and lungs. But what is God's purpose in this account? What was God doing here? Did he want to teach Ahab something? Does he want to teach us something? And of course the answer is yes. He wants to teach us a couple things and Ahab a couple of things, right? First, God was plainly communicating to all of Israel and particularly to Ahab and to Jezebel, his victory over Baal. Remember, Ahab had left Jezreel with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Now the text doesn't tell us what happened to the prophets of Asherah, but we do know the prophets of Baal are dead. And now returning from Mount Carmel, Ahab is being led into the town by the one prophet of Yahweh, Elijah. Assuming that Jezebel and the people are waiting and looking and, and they, are, they, are, they see the rain, they're wondering, you know, who has brought this rain? And Jezebel, of course, be saying that it's Baal. Baal and Asherah have brought this rain. And then all of a sudden, Elijah, at the head of Ahab's chariot, running in the power of God, making immediately and obviously clear that Yahweh had won the battle. You remember the story of Pheidippides back in 490 BC who ran 
from Marathon to Athens to declare that the Greeks had won the battle of Marathon over the Persians. This is what Elijah is. He's a herald, heralding the good news. The blessings of rain have returned because Yahweh is the only God. He is the only king. He is the only Lord of heaven and earth. And he has won the victory over Baal. But there's a second thing that this story of a running prophet teaches us and taught Ahab in his day. You see, God is empowering Elijah to run before Ahab, not merely as a herald declaring his victory, but also as a humble servant of the king, a forerunner for the king. Again, Elijah's not running like Clark Kent to rub it into Ahab that, hey, I won the contest in Mount Carmel and I'm a faster runner than you are too, right? It's not like John Henry and his battle against the steam-powered, you know, rock drill machine. No, this is God enabling Elijah to run faster than horses as a forerunner for the king, to communicate to Ahab that the prophet of God can be your servant, even as he has been your adversary. He's been your adversary, your opponent, not because he doesn't like you, but because he serves Yahweh and you serve Baal. And he has been against you as the troubler of Israel, as we saw last week. Elijah wasn't out to ruin Ahab, but to save him. And so through this running before Ahab's chariot, God seems to be graciously putting before Ahab a visual choice. Will you repent and follow the word of God and have the prophet as your servant? going before you? Or will you disobey? Will you persist in your disobedience? Will you repent and have salvation even though you don't deserve it? Or will you receive what you do deserve? I imagine that Ahab, while he was down at the brook watching the prophets of Baal being executed, wondered, am I next? But that's not what he heard. He didn't hear Elijah say to the people, now bring Ahab. He heard Elijah say to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, celebrate, feast that God's promises are coming to pass. The rain is coming. Ahab deserved death, but he received the mercy, the kindness, the goodness of God. When you couple that feast with this running prophet serving Ahab by running ahead of him. What you have here is a gospel invitation, a gospel offer to one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel. And are we any different than Ahab? Do we deserve death any less? Of course, the answer is no. We too are wicked. If you didn't hear that in the first point, you weren't listening, right? None of us pray as we ought to pray. None of us commune with the Lord according to his word. We're prayerless instead of prayerful. We deserve death. And yet, a prophet greater than Elijah has come. A prophet who, even this morning with his word, runs before you, serving you. The Lord Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came in the form of a bondservant, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, who is the great intercessor 
for the sins of his people. The one who has borne the curse of God, the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus, through his life and through his death, has poured out all the covenant blessings through his Holy Spirit upon his people. All who turn to him in faith receive those blessings, including the forgiveness of your sins. You see, the goodness of of God toward Ahab in this story in multiple ways is is a call to each and every one of you this day to turn from your idolatry, to turn from your prayerlessness, to turn to the Lord through Jesus Christ, to come with confidence before the throne of grace in the name of Jesus Christ. No matter how wicked you are this day, there is salvation, there is hope through Jesus Christ. And so Elijah, the running prophet, running to God, running to Jezreel, he reminds us again of the grace of a God who hears our prayers who desires to pour out his blessing upon us, who desires to commune with us in prayer. When we repent, he restores us to himself. He pours out his blessing. He serves us. He goes before us with his word. Brothers and sisters, may we as a church be a praying church because we understand the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May you as families and as individuals May your houses be filled with prayer, confident prayer, earnest prayer, watchful prayer, persistent prayer. And may you never forget that even in your prayerlessness, the grace of God and Jesus Christ sustains you and strengthens you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how thankful we are for the gospel. How thankful we are for the work of Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. Lord, how thankful we are that you sent and strengthened Elijah to run before Ahab, to declare your victory, and to show that for all who turn away from sin and turn to you, you will serve and you will give us your grace and your blessings. So Lord, would you help us, we pray, to turn away from idolatry, to turn away from our prayerlessness and our self-reliance and our pride. Help us, O Lord, to look to you through Jesus Christ, your Son, and the power of your Holy Spirit, to pray without ceasing, to live a praying life. Lord, to, in every way, imitate Elijah, your servant, a man just like us. Lord, we thank you for this story and all that you've taught us through it today. Be with us as we go forth into this week. Lord, help us to remember this Sabbath day, to keep it holy, to take advantage of this day, to spend time with you and with your people in prayer. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.